Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, this is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. I'm delighted to do the second in a series of podcasts with Dr. Marcia Pelchat from the Monell Chemical Senses Center in Philadelphia, one of the world's leading institutions on looking at, at the chemical senses and issues, in our case, particularly related to food. Um, Marcy is also a faculty member at the University of Pennsylvania and, and did her graduate training there and has written some very interesting papers on the concept of food and addiction. So Marcy, welcome. Thank you. Uh, let's start with this. People uh, get pretty fired up about this topic, don't they? Yes. And you've encountered yes, some do. strong feelings about this. Can you explain some about how what the reaction has been to the discussion that, that you've had about food and addiction? Well, the the idea that food is addictive has, has been around for a long time. It's pretty clear that there are lots of parallels between responses to foods and responses to drugs and that they involve the same brain mechanisms. Um, I think that uh, there's great concern about possible legal ramifications of the concept of food addiction uh, that might be similar to what happened in the tobacco industry. So it is a very, very touchy subject. So one can easily see um, that the food industry would have a stake in this and have strong feelings about it. But you can also see, because of the important implications, that scientists would be cautious about the application of that term. Yes. And it's the sort of thing that, as a field, we wouldn't want to apply in a haphazard way without sufficient evidence behind it. That's why the right. studies that you do and others do are so important. So you, you've made the point that it's important to consider diagnostic criteria for substance abuse and chemical dependence and things like that to see how that maps on to what's going on with food. Could you describe what some of those criteria are and how you think they may relate to food? Okay, sure. Um, I talk about the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual uh, criteria for food depend or for substance dependence. So that's the and Bible of diagnostic criteria for various exactly. psychiatric disorders. Yes, and uh, at least in the United States. And uh, so uh, there are a list of seven criteria. A person has to meet three of those criteria to have a diagnosis. Um, they don't all fit perfectly, but a lot of them. Uh, focus on difficulty giving up the substance uh, or uh, giving up valued activities in, in order to continue using the substance, all of which could apply to an overweight or obese person trying unsuccessfully to diet. Um, there are others like tolerance and withdrawal, tolerance being the need to take more and more of a drug in order to get high, that are a little harder to apply to food. But um, withdrawal, for example, almost always involves craving, and certainly people do have food cravings. Um, so for a healthy, normal person, it would be hard to argue that they met those criteria. But for someone who's overweight and trying unsuccessfully, especially to diet, I think there's a pretty good match. 
All right. So it sounds like, in your opinion, that there are enough of the criteria that get used to describe addiction to classic drugs of abuse that could apply or do apply to to eating-related issues to justify pursuing this topic aggressively. Yes, yeah, okay. I would say so. Okay, that sounds good. So what kind of work have you done that, that bears on the issue of food and addiction? We spoke in the previous podcast about your work on craving, which I think is very applicable here, and I'd urge listeners to hear that. Okay. Are there other things that you've done that would, would be relevant to this issue of food and addiction? Well, uh, most of the evidence that's given when discussing the concept of food addiction Uh, focuses on parallels between food cravings and drug cravings. Um, So one study that I've done recently is a brain imaging study on food craving. And um, we found that the same areas of the brain were activated during food craving as you would see in a similar type of drug craving study. And those included... Uh, memory areas of the brain, um, as well as um, parts of the brain involved in habit and automatic behavior. And that's a very important aspect of um, the concept of food addiction, uh, the, the idea that uh, there's almost an automatic response to food cues in the environment that would trigger eating even when a person isn't planning to eat a particular food. The, the habit part of the brain makes perfect sense, and one can readily see why that would be relevant. You mentioned the memory part of the brain. How would that be a player in this picture? Well, um, as I said in the previous podcast, in food craving there is a very specific desire. There's an evocation of a sensory memory or template that has to be matched in order for the craving to be satisfied. So we think that that's why we see um, strong activation of memory structures when people report that they're experiencing food cravings. I'd like to throw out a thought and just tell me whether you agree or disagree with this. I believe that this issue of food and addiction is a very important one to explore because it could go down some very important roads potentially. There are a lot of science to be done, but it's important to at least do the science. And some people believe when when you hear the term food addiction that we're talking about people that would then label themselves or be labeled by somebody else as a food addict. And those might be the, the kind of people who are, you know, very compulsively eating and, and might behaving with food like somebody else would with alcohol if they were binge drinking. But it seems to me that, that, that those people, while very important, and we need to understand them and help them if we can, are a very small part of the relevance of the issue and a much bigger part of the issue are sort of day-to-day behaviors in, in people who may or may not be overweight. But if you think of certain food groups like high sugar foods like soft drinks or something, if those are triggering some kind of an addictive process, perhaps even a low-level one, then vast numbers of people could be affected and the, the health of the nation could be heavily affected by what these foods are doing to the brain. Does that make sense? Well, yeah, I would agree with that. And Although, yes, again, people who would meet the real clinical definition of food addiction may be a small group, 
um, food cravings are virtually universal among, say, young women. They're extremely common. Um, you know, even in elderly men, about 65% of that population reports food cravings. So the, these factors could be important in almost everybody's eating behavior. Okay. <clears throat> Let's talk about what might be addictive. Foods have a lot of different things in them, and what does the science so sh show so far? And if, if there are any things that look like likely candidates for triggering some kind of an addictive process, what would they be? Well, almost all of the foods that people report craving in my studies are very high in caloric density. Um, they can have be sugar-fat combinations, salt-fat combinations, you name it. Uh, we're really not sure yet whether there's one particular macronutrient that makes it likely that a food will be craved. Um, so by macronutrient, you mean the protein, carbohydrate, or fat? Right, yes. And um, we, we have shown recently that you don't have to like a food in order to learn to crave it. Um, we've asked people to consume a vanilla-flavored beverage for two weeks, every day for two weeks, and they start reporting cravings for it, which surprise them because they don't really like it. Now, under normal circumstances, people don't continue to consume foods that they don't really like, um, and so... Uh, those foods may not be very good candidates for craving. But the fact that we can teach people to crave, say, something healthy that they might not initially like very much could be useful in producing some positive changes. That does sound like hopeful news. So when you talk to people who study this issue, as I often do, and I ask what's the most likely candidate for an ingredient of food that might be triggering some sort of addictive process, sugar is what comes up most often. And I'm curious about your opinion on this, whether that's because sugar could be the most addictive substance or whether that just happens to be what's studied, been studied so far. Well, um, we know that at, at birth, um, when infants are given sugar water, that produces a release of rewarding brain chemicals, the endogenous opiates, which are the chemicals that are involved in runner's high and battlefield analgesia and all of that sort of thing. So if you um, give an infant sugar water to drink while he's getting a heel stick in the hospital, he'll cry less. And this has become a common practice. And in animal studies, it's been shown that sugar definitely causes a release of these rewarding chemicals. Um, we also know that there are links between drug addiction and liking for sugar. So among alcoholics, um, there's uh, a great deal of liking for sugar, and in fact, um, Alcoholics Anonymous advises them to um, consume sweet foods in order to uh, deal with alcohol cravings. So there is reason to think that there might be a special role for sugar. 
It's very difficult, though, to show that sugar causes a release of endogenous opiates in adults. What about fat? Has anybody studied fat in this context? Um, fat has not been studied as much as sugar. Um, you know, there are old studies uh, showing that liking ratings for sugar-fat combinations are higher in overweight individuals. Um, I think that that would be a good area for future investigation, that perhaps fat is able to play the same role as sugar in adults as a result of learning. Uh, but so far, no one's shown that. A related question. Uh, sitting in front of me is a, a list of ingredients from a food. It happens to be a chocolate Pop-Tart. Now, these, this is several years old, so I'm not sure if it still has the same ingredients, but I imagine it's probably pretty close. There are 56 entries into this ingredient list. Uh, there, sugar shows up a number of times, and things that are fat show up a number of times in here. Now, I'm not saying, by the way, that a chocolate Pop-Tart is addictive, but let's just use this mm -hmm. as an example of a food with a lot of things in it. Um, but there are lots of things in here that are colorings, preservatives, um, you know, other agents that give the product desirable physical qualities from the industry point of view and probably from the consumer's point of view as well. Do we know anything about what these things do to the brain? And are, are these, do you think, potentially important to study in the context of addition? So, you know, mono and diglycerides, a sodium aluminum phosphate, um, you know, um, yellow number six lake, which is a color, blue number two lake, red number 40 lake. Do we know anything about these? Uh, not really. And, you know, there's, there's the old behaviorist view that any food ought to be able to become uh, craved or addictive if it's used in a certain way. And one idea is that um, intermittent access to a food, having, uh, you know, having candy one day and then trying to go on a diet and stay away from it and then failing and going back to it and so on, might mimic that kind of intermittent access that's been looked at in animal models in the laboratory. Um, and in these animal models, um, it begins to look a lot like binge eating in humans. Well, it's another reason why more science on the issue is so important, because when you have a food that has 56 things on the ingredient le level, we should know what they do to the brain. And it's possible they do nothing, and possible that this is not a food or these type of things are not foods that trigger an addictive process. Only more science will really tell us that. But... It's pretty important to know, I would think. So let me ask a question that's on the minds of a lot of people uh, who might be struggling eating what they would consider an optimal diet. So it could be the people who are very heavy and, and getting a lot of calories, or it could be uh, just people who want to eat better and are eating too many cookies or can't stop and have dessert even though they've had a big meal and things like that. Is it better if you're, trying to, if you're struggling with consumption of a particular type of food to go cold turkey from it, like might be prescribed with alcohol and Alcoholics Anonymous, where you're considered always a recovering alcoholic, and if you have a single drink, it can lead to 
to uh, to go down a pretty bad path or to eat these things in moderation. What is what do you think your research and the research of others would say about that particular issue? Well, I think that uh, we really need something like a clinical trial to look at these approaches. It hasn't been done systematically. Um, we know that for some people, um, just portion control uh, or putting the food out of sight is very helpful. And if they're really dedicated to resisting a particular food, they can do it that way. But um, theoretically, every time you eat a food that you crave, you're reinforcing the link between cues and the environment and that craving. So you might argue for people who are really having a difficult problem that it would be better to go cold turkey and eliminate that particular food from the diet. The problem would be if there were a wide variety of foods that had to be eliminated. Obviously, people need to eat. Um, so that's where it becomes important to evaluate these um, other techniques to uh, help people have some portion control. Let's end with, um, with sort of a home run question, if you will, or sort of the biggest question of all. In thinking about the kind of research you and others are doing on this issue, one could use a lot of words to describe the research topic. It could be food cravings, it could be food liking, it could be food desires, it could just be food consumption, or the word addiction can be brought into the discourse. Um, as we when we said as we let off this podcast, the implications of the use of that word addiction are pretty important. Could have legal ramifications, social ramifications, ramifications for marketing foods to children and the like. So given the, the loaded nature of the word, the emotional nature of the word, and how it evokes emotional responses from people and the potential importance of it, uh, do you think it's justified using the term in, in the way we're discussing foods? I mean, uh, I'm not asking you to declare right. whether food is addictive because you probably, I, I assume you'd probably agree we're not far enough along with the science to say right. that definitively. But is, it, is there value in including it into the discussion? I think that, that there's definite value in uh, examining this further, and uh, we shouldn't hide our heads in the sand and, and try to avoid the issue, but rather confront it. I think there are a lot of lessons that can be learned from treatment of drug addiction that could be applied to eating disorders. And I think that that's a very positive way of viewing these similarities. All right. Well, thank you for that. And thank you so much for joining us. Our guest today was Dr. Marcia Pelchat from the Monell Chemical Senses Center in Philadelphia and a faculty member at the University of Pennsylvania and a leader on issues of food cravings, food addiction, and a number of other important related issues. So thanks so much for joining us. Okay. Thank you for having me. Uh, you're welcome to visit our website at the, of the Rudd Center at www.yalerudcenter.org. Uh, on the website, you'll see a variety of resources related to food and food policy, including a free monthly email newsletter that we send out, a list of the other podcasts that we've recorded, and there are a great number of them with very excellent guests, uh, and a variety of other resources that may be helpful. Thank you.